All right, well, it's good to see all of you here today. I'm excited that we are starting a new series. We just finished a series on covenants, and now we're going to start a series on the seven enemies. We're going to be talking about, so you look in the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to see different lists about enemies that the nation of Israel had. And one of God's instructions to them was you need to get rid of your enemies before you're going to enter in the promised land. So I want to take the next seven or so weeks and talk about what do these enemies actually represent? And how do you defeat your enemies? So I want to talk about that for the, the next few weeks, and I think it's going to be kind of a fun series to maybe identify some things or hindrances in your life that might prevent you from receiving all that God really has in store for you. And then at the end of uh, the message, we'll talk about what is a strategy, what spiritual disciplines has God given us so we can resist the seven enemies, and like it says in the book of Deuteronomy, that we make no treaties with our enemies. You know, if I divided this room up and said, okay, we're going to get in small groups, and actually we're not going to do this, so all of you thinking, is he really going to do this right now? And you're getting a little nervous. We're not going to do this. It's a little hypothetical situation. If I said to you, let's get into small groups, and we can sit in circles and get to know some people around us, and I said, you know, for an icebreaker question, just go around the room and ask people, how are you doing? We kind of know what's going to happen the first time around. People are going to just basically say, yeah, I'm doing good, having a good week, uh, the weather's nice. Well, it was yesterday, so, so things are good. You're not going to get very deep. And maybe you go around the circle one time, and maybe you go around the second time. People might open up a little bit more and talk a little bit more about how things are going in their life, or maybe they're having a struggle at work, or maybe with a family or relationship problem. You might get a little bit more vulnerable and get a little open. But I think all of us can relate to the times when somebody asks us, okay, how are things going? And you know they're looking for something a little deeper than fine. They're looking for a little bit more vulnerability, and this is a person that you could trust. And you kind of sit there and say, I don't even know how to respond. Because you know something's going on the inside, but you really don't even have the words to really articulate maybe some of the emotions or the feelings that you're having. So you're just kind of don't even know what to say. That can actually be a hard place to be in when you, you want to talk about something, but you just, you, you just all feel like all tense inside, and you don't know what to say, and you, you're not really sure of what emotion is really leading you, and, and while you would like to explain, there's, you really lack words. I think it's times like this that I remember a passage in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that it says, the heart is deceptive above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is one of those verses that you read, and at first you're like, I don't really know what that means. It's actually the prophet Jeremiah is talking to the nation of Israel while they're in captivity to Babylon. And he's saying to this nation, he says, you know, your heart is deceitful. He's talking about the heart. He's talking about the things that are going on inside of you. Maybe part of your soul or your, your personality or your thoughts or your dislikes. He's saying some of those things inside of you, you know, they're deceitful and they can be sick and who can understand it? On one hand, this verse gives you a little bit of comfort because it's like, yeah, that's maybe why I can't understand what's going on on the inside of me because things are kind of messed up. But on the other hand, what is kind of difficult on this verse is that you just are left with, that doesn't just seem very encouraging. I mean, it almost seems like, well, what's the point then? If things are so messed up on the inside of me, then what, what's the point of life? And what's the point of, of, of my existence? Because that would be kind of frustrating. You know, I used to look at that verse, and it would be very discouraging to me. 
However, now I'm kind of liking that verse a lot. It's actually a very comforting verse for me. Because it's a verse that acknowledges that probably we don't have everything figured out completely on the inside. And that's okay because verse 10 is a very comforting verse. The verse right after the one I read says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. See, no matter what you are feeling like on the inside, no matter your lack of ability to maybe explain what's going on in your life, verse 10 is where there's real comfort. That I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. See, what God's saying is, I know everything that's going on inside of you. I'm fully aware of everything that is going on inside of you, and maybe you don't have the words to talk about it, but I'm fully aware. And I like the part, too, where it says, and God tests the mind. See, that's God saying to you, the test isn't for the teacher, the test is for the student, and God is saying, I'm going to help you understand what's going on. See, that's the comfort of that verse, that God is in the midst of every situation that you are in because he always has something better for you. That God always has victory. That he always has the ability to overcome. Throughout the book of Exodus, it talks a lot about God's promise to the nation of Israel, that he wanted to bring them into the promised land. All through the book of Exodus, you hear talk in the Deuteronomy about the promised land, the promised land that God wants to bring the nation of Israel to. And I think sometimes we wonder, okay, what is the promised land? See, throughout scriptures, the promised land represents two things. Number one, it is a physical location, that God had a specific place that the nation of Israel would live. But also, on the flip side, the, the promised land represented a spiritual place. It re represented a metaphor where you would find peace with God, that you would find enjoyment with God, that you'd get to the place that you overcome your enemies, overcome some obstacles in your life, and you would actually come to the place where you'd maybe begin to really enjoy God and experience God in a way that you've never done before. And that's the beautiful promise that God gives us throughout the first books of the Bible is his desire to bring us into that promised land. And so the last several weeks, we talked about covenant. We talked about how God makes arrangements to take us from our place of captivity and to bring us into the promised land. And that's an encouraging to study the covenants. And you realize with the covenants that God is doing everything on our behalf, understands all of our weaknesses, understands every single one of our limitations, and says, I'm going to move on your behalf because I love you. Not because you've done such outstanding, amazing things that he's like, I'm going to give you a reward to get you out of Egypt, but because he simply says, I love you. So when you get done with a study of covenants, it's easy to sit back and say, you know, God is amazing. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's full of love. He's going to work everything out for me in my life. Everything's going to be really good because he's in charge. And it's easy to sit back and say, I guess I don't have to do much. It's easy to kind of, I think for me, sometimes look at the covenant and say, God is so good and so kind, so compassionate, so forgiving, I don't really have to worry a whole lot about what I need to do. I think when that happens, we kind of miss a little bit of what covenants is about because part of covenants is to be able to ask the question, what is my part? What is my whole part in this plan that God has for my life? And do I actually have a part of it? See, some of you may recall when the Lord did rescue the Israelites out of Egypt, that God miraculously got the nation of Israel out of Egypt, got them away from the Egyptians, opened up the Red Sea, part of the Red Sea, got the Israelites through the Red Sea, brought them to the other side, destroyed all their enemies. Huge miracles. And what do the people of Israel do? 
they build a golden calf and worship false gods. And you're like, who does that? God just did these huge miracles. I mean, miracles like parting a Red Sea. I mean, that, that's a pretty big miracle. That, that, I mean, you've got, you walk through it. You get to the other side, and suddenly you decide, I'm going to worship false gods. I'm going to build some idols. You're like, who does that? See, unfortunately, I think um, quite often a lot of us do that without even knowing it. See, I think what happened to the Israelites, they got on the other side and they were, they got on the other side and, where am I going? They, I have something I want to say. <laughs> Tongue-tied. The Israelites got to the other side of the Red Sea. They moved to Mount Sinai where God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. Moses keeps going on the mountain, meeting with God. While Moses is in the mountain, it's like the Israelites get all scared, thinking, hey, Moses has gone too long. Did he forget about us? Did God abandon us? And right away what kicks in is fear. Saying we're left alone. What are we going to do? So immediately the Israelites are in fear and that's what caused them to worship false gods. See what happened to the Israelites? It brought them back to what they did before. So often when fear overtakes us or anxiety overtakes us, we go back to the thing that we did before because somehow or another, even though we know that was destructive, we think, there might be some comfort into doing something that is familiar to us. And so here the Israelites are. They're out of Egypt, out of bondage. God is leading them, and they get all nervous and panicky. But see, God in his faithfulness didn't just give up on them. Once again, God went to the Israelites and said, I am going to do for you what you cannot do on your own. And God continues to move the Israelites through the wilderness and get them into the promised land. So one day the Israelites get up, and the promised land is literally right in front of them. And they've been hearing for decades and years and hundreds of years about this wonderful promised land that God has for them. And God says to them, okay, there are, some, there are some people that are living in your promised land, some of these seven nations that we're referring to that will need to be destroyed. And God's saying to them, okay, you're going to have to get rid of some of those nations before when you enter in. So God says to Moses, said, okay, take 12 spies. Send them into the land and have them look around at the enemies and see what's there and have them come back and give us a report so we can figure out a strategy to destroy your enemies. So 12 spies went out. After 40 days, they came back in. And the first 10 spies said, you know what? That land is beautiful, just like God promised. But I'll tell you what. The enemies in that land are way too big for any of us to handle. So we shouldn't even do it. Let's just stay where we're at. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they saw the exact same thing the other 10 spies came, saw. They came back and they said, yep, the land is beautiful. Yep, there are some uh, enemies there, but we can overcome. That trust and confidence that God who had called them to see their enemies destroyed would be faithful to do it no matter what the obstacle was. See, unfortunately, the people of Israel didn't side with Joshua and Caleb and said, all right, let's go with these two guys' reports that we can do it instead. The book of Numbers tells us that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept out loud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said, if we had only died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Suddenly all these promises that God had for the nation of Israel, suddenly the Israelites are, I'm too scared. I don't want to do what God has called us to do. Fear set into them and they turned away from what God had called them to do. See, the sad thing about the Israelites being scared 
to actually enter into the promised land was what their disobedience actually caused them. See, what the scriptures tell us that the, what God did was he delayed that entire generation from entering into the promised land. Here, a whole group of people were steps away from entering into the promised land, and they feared to overtake some of the enemies that they had. And so for the next 40 years, that entire nation wandered again through the wilderness. And all the, all the generation died off except Joshua and Caleb. And it's sad that entire generation missed their destiny that God had for them just because their fear of overcoming their enemies or their obstacles in life was actually too much for them. It's a sobering passage to read that entire generation missed what God had for them. And literally, they were steps away from what God had for them. But see, God's faithfulness extends to the generations. Even though that generation missed out, God still had a plan for the next generation. So 40 years go by, and once again, the nation of Israel is right on the edge of the promised land. And this is where the book of Deuteronomy picks up. Where Deuteronomy is written by Moses, and it's all about Moses and his relationship to the Israelites. And the first 10 or so chapters of the book of Moses is, is Moses instructing this new generation saying, hey, we got a new generation of Jewish people, followers of God, and these are the instructions that God has for us. And I'm going to read Moses six to, no, Deuteronomy 6 today. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I think the, the instructions that Moses has given to the Israelites are the same instructions that God would give us today. That even though this is Old Testament thousands of years ago, that passage in Deuteronomy 6 is incredibly relevant for each of us today. It's incredibly relevant for us to understand the words of Moses to us so we can follow what God has for each of us to get us into the promised land. So if you have your Bibles with you, just join me as I read uh, Deuteronomy 6. And again, it is, it's a little bit long, but it's a good one. So need a little drink. So this is Moses speaking to the, the new generation of believers. And he's saying, These are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commands me to teach you. You must obey them in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all of his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in your land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, your God of our ancestors, promised you. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all the strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of our house and on your gates. The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be, stocked, will richly, the houses will be richly stocked with goods you did not produce. You would draw water from cisterns you did not dig. 
and you will eat from vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, you must use only his name. You must not worship any of the gods of the neighboring nations, for the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God. His anger will flare up against you, and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. You must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massah. You must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God, all the laws and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so all will go well with you. Then you will enter and occupy the good land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. You will drive out all the enemies living in the land, just as the Lord said you would. In the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? Then you must tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all the people. He brought us out out of Egypt so he could give us this land he swore to give our ancestors. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all of these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands of the Lord, our, all the commands that the Lord our God has given to us. That's a pretty powerful chapter with Moses' instructions to a, a new group of believers. Telling them what they are going to do is they are about ready to step foot into the plans that God has for their life. So I think we get to, a lot of times we get to that place like the Israelites where God, we are steps away from entering sometimes into what God has planned for us. And we sometimes, it's easy to forget these instructions that God gave to Moses. Forgetting our part to follow and to be obedient. I want to highlight three verses in the book of Deuteronomy that I think are very powerful. The first is in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. It says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Some of you know this is referred to the Shema. It's referred to the Shema because the very first two words of this, or the first word is listen. That's the Hebrew word for Shema. This little phrase or these two verses have become pretty much the cornerstone of the Jewish prayer life. If you're a follower of God, a Jewish follower of God back in the Old Testament time or even the first or second century, this is something you would have probably prayed every single day, probably twice a day, probably have been part of your morning prayers and afternoon prayers, that the people of Israel would pray this because this is an incredibly important two verses in the Old Testament, that it helps the Israelites remember who they are and who God is and to remind them what God did for them, but also to remind them what they are supposed to do in response. See, in the Hebrew language, this word listen means way more than just listen with your ears. It's way more than just listening with your ears. To listen in the Hebrew language also means to respond. If you are listening, you are going to respond. If you don't respond, then you're probably not listening. And so part of the Hebrew culture, they understood when you are hearing God or you are reading the word of God, you are listening to it, but you need to respond appropriately to what God has put in front of you. And so the seriousness of this prayer is, is a wonderful reminder 
that not only do we listen to God, but we need to respond as God would have us do. See, the second powerful word in these two verses is the word love. Because love is always the motivation to listen. See, none of us are able to listen to God until we have experienced the love of God. Till God has revealed himself to us and we know his love for us. See, God didn't come up with these illustrations or this command for the Israelites while they were in Egypt and said, hey, before I get you out of bondage, you're going to you're gonna have to listen to me and obey me. No, God got the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, okay, these are your instructions on how to live your life with me. And so the word love is such a powerful word because the word love is the catalyst for you able to listen to God, but not just listen to him, but respond to God. God never set up his laws with us just so we would just respond to him just out of fear. But God wanted us to respond to him out of the love he has for us and out of the compassion he has for us and also for the grace that he has for us. So the reason that we are able to listen to God in the first place is because God has extended his grace to us. He's given us the faith to listen to him. And as we walk and understand the grace of God in our lives, we're able to respond to God out of the grace he's given us to obey him. And that's the way God designed it to be, that, the, that our, our acts of following God would be based on the love we have experienced and received from him. So much of this listen and love is all throughout these first parts of Deuteronomy, where God wants us to respond to him because of the love that he has given to us. But I think if we're all honest, too, we would say there's sometimes a disconnect between listening and responding. As much as we would love to say, yeah, the minute I read the Bible, I just respond immediately. Some of us, there can be a year disconnect between listening and responding. The Israelites, there's a 40-year disconnect between listening and responding. And part of our walk with Christ is to shorten up that gap between listening and responding. It's kind of what we're doing here today, trying to close that gap between listening and responding. Because the stakes are high. We don't want to be like the Israelites and miss out on what God has for us. See, the second verse I want to highlight in Deuteronomy 6 is verse 19. That God's instructions to the nation of Israel is, you will drive out all the enemies living in the land, just as the Lord said you would. See, this is a task in front of the Israelites. They needed to confront their enemies. See, now the Israelites had physical enemies that were physical nations that they had to fight with real weapons to destroy. None of us have that. We're not going to physically fight people. Our enemies are spiritual battles that we have with against things like pride or fear or disbelief or a whole lot of other lists that are in the Bible, things that God says to us, you need to fight against these things in your life. Because if you want to live in the promised land, you can't live with all the other enemies that are in your life. So take serious what I'm calling you to do, because I want you to dwell with me, and I'm a jealous God, and I don't want any other false gods living with us. So let's be serious and get rid of them. And that's where the next chapter in Deuteronomy 7, the first couple of verses, it actually talks about the enemies that God is telling the nation of Israel that they have to stand against. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. 
the Hittites, the Gizzarites, the Amorites, the Canaanite, the Pezer... Per That's a hard one, because I'm going to say it wrong. The Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jezubites, these seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and conquers them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. Okay, God acknowledges to the nation of Israel, these enemies are bigger than you and greater than you, but I'm going to hand them over to you. So the next few weeks, I want to talk about who are these enemies? What do they represent? And why was God so serious about they had to get rid of these enemies? See, for a lot of us, these nations, we'll talk about the words behind them and what they, what they mean are basically a lot of the obstacles that each of us experience on a daily day on a daily basis, as we try to follow God. See, I think a lot of us at this point often have the question of, why do we have to face so many enemies? You know, when we're born again by God and we make a commitment that we are going to follow Christ and we're going to be serious about it, why doesn't God just wipe away every single enemy that's in our life? Why doesn't God just take away every evil desire we have? Why don't God take away every sinful thought that we have or cleanse us immediately from all unrighteousness so then we don't have to worry about these enemies? It seems like that would might have been a really nice deal if God would have said to the Israelites, okay, you're about ready to enter in the promised land, so pray this prayer with me and you'll automatically be instantly free of anything so we can just get in the promised land and work things out. That would be really nice if you would have done it this, that way. But Judges 3, 1 through 4 is actually going to give us a little insight of why did God leave so many of these enemies for the Israelites to deal with? It said, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations. The Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers and all the Canaanites, the Sidonites and the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hermon. These people were, thank you for passing that. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. There was a strategy to leave those enemies. See, God said, I'm going to leave those nations in the land to test the Israelites to teach the Israelites, to teach them how to remain obedient, but also to teach them warfare. Another way is to teach them how to pray, teach them how to trust in the Lord. See, as hard as it sometimes is to believe and sometimes hard as it is to accept, sometimes God will leave sinful desires for us to battle so he can, for our benefit. But sometimes God will leave enemies in our lives or in places we're going to teach us, to instruct us, to train us, to perfect us, perfect us and to even make us more dependent on him. See, part of what the Israelites, what they had to do is they had to come against the, the Hittites. Hittites was a nation. You read about them several times in the Old Testament, and I'm not so much going to jump into what is the Hittites all about because that would get kind of long, but I want to talk about a little bit about why were the Hittites such a threat to the Israelites. 
See, back in the Bible days, people would often call other people by obvious traits that the person exhibited. So your name would often get made because of behaviors that you had or things that you've done in the past. And the Hittite's name actually comes from the word fear. It comes from the word fear or terror. And that's a lot of what the Hittites did. They brought fear and terror to many people, especially the Israelites. And often when we get in a fear situation, our usually response is either we're going to fight or we're going to flight, meaning leave. And actually the word fear often in the Old Testament does mean flight, meaning we're going to take off. When we get in a fearful situation and we're up against fear, often we're going to run or sometimes we're going to fight. So I want to talk a little bit about fear today and about how sometimes fear can actually prevent us from experiencing all that God has for us. Now, I recognize in some ways fear can be a good thing. There are some good things to be fearful of because they actually protect you. When we lived in Florida, I was extremely scared of snakes. However, I was smart. So every Saturday when I'd do my lawn work, I'd get out my huge rake and I'd poke in every bush to make sure there's no snake in there while I cut the grass. That's a good way to respond to fear. You stand up against it. There's sometimes a fearful thing in your life you say, I'm not even going to face it. I'm going to just stay away from it. I'm not even going to go outside because my anxiety is too high. Sometimes fear can grip us to the point that we are scared to even engage in our environment. We're so scared of what might happen to us, so scared of what could happen to us, that we're scared to even experience life. Sometimes fear can just prevent you from experiencing good things that God would have for you because it's too much of a risk. What if somebody hurts you? What if somebody says something against you? So we try to protect ourselves. And while fear can be a helpful thing in your life to protect you, fear can also be very debilitating and can keep you from experiencing all that you have. It's interesting that 366 times in the Bible you have the statement, fear not. And we often say, you know, one for each day of the year, and even one for leap year. And some people find that comforting to know that 366 times the Bible says fear not, but sometimes that can be also frustrating too and hurtful. Because you might say, yeah, the Bible does say 366 times fear not, but I still experience a lot of fear. So what am I supposed to do? I think sometimes people can read the Bible and actually get a little bit discouraged because I'm listening to the word, but I'm not responding at all how I would want to. There's such a huge disconnect in me. And so when I'm reading about God's instructions and I'm not responding, I actually can feel a little bit of condemnation. So I want to talk a little bit today about how do you, what do you do when you're in that situation? Where when you listen to the word and there's that big gap on how you would respond, what do you do in that gap period? So you're able to respond appropriately to the word of God. And so as I opened and I talked about some of what we want to do in this, in this series is talk about what different spiritual disciplines did God give to us that is one that is we're in the gap between listening and responding. What do we do in that, that period of time? How do we shorten the delay? So this week I want to talk about meditation. It's a discipline that was very common in the Old Testament period. Even you see all through the Psalms, I think about close to 30 different times, you talk about meditating on the Word of God. 
It's kind of a discipline I think that we've lost a little bit in the church, but what's very interesting to me is culture is really asking for more meditation. A lot of the younger culture is looking for different ways to find meditation. And a lot of them are looking into Eastern religions. You're looking into Buddhism or maybe looking to yoga or other forms of uh, Eastern religions to find a form of meditation to escape. Christian meditation is a whole lot different. Christian meditation is not about emptying your mind like a lot of Eastern religions are about. Instead of instead meditating for a believer is about filling your mind with Christ or biblical attributes. Meditation is all about connecting to the truths that God has for us. So while the Eastern religions might empty themselves, and that sounds kind of good if you have stress, that's not actually going to eliminate any of the problems that you have in your life. That's why biblical meditation is so powerful, because you actually start connecting to the truths that God has for you. So you can live and listen and respond appropriately. See, in Joshua 1, we pick up Joshua is the leader who's going to take the nation of Israel into the promised land. And in Joshua 1, verse 6 through 9, Moses, God is giving his instructions to Joshua, and he says to Joshua, he says, Be strong, be courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I will give to them. Be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instructions continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And these are the instructions God gave to Moses. In the middle of it, he says, meditate. I think one of the reasons God calls us to meditate is because sometimes I think it's easy to read the Word of God and you're listening to the Word of God and you get to a scripture and you say, I really don't know what that means. And so you just kind of slide right by it. Sometimes I think we can read through the Bible and we miss whole chunks of Scripture because we're reading so fast because our goal today was to read a chapter and we don't really even know what the chapter even said because we're more concerned about getting through a chapter than maybe understanding what it says. And so sometimes to meditate on the Word of God is what we do in, comp in, in a complement to reading our daily Scripture. See, some of the Bible verses that we come across with actually seem a little bit counterintuitive. They don't actually make a whole lot of sense when you just read them for face value. For example, we have John 12, verse 24 that you read that says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's easy to read that and say, that just doesn't make any sense. Sometimes you can even read what a commentary would help you understand what this verse means. And you say, okay, I understand a little bit what it means. I can listen more to it, but I still am having a hard time responding to that. 
Because I don't get how that's actually going to apply to my life and how I might actually do that. And that's where the role of meditation comes in. When you might decide to sit down and hold your, hold your Bible in your hand and read that verse and say, God, you're going to have to help me understand what this means. Because I really don't get it at all. Because if you go on and you look at that verse, you will see it's a very powerful what God's actually saying in this verse that he's calling us to self-denial. It'd be very easy to read the book of John and kind of miss over this verse because it doesn't actually make sense when you first read it. So meditation is a very important thing for us to do to absorb what we can out of the, get out of the word so we are actually able to respond to the word. So the big question comes in is, how do you do this? See, for some of us, too, if you live with fear or you live with anxiety or you live with doubts, you wonder how can you, how, how can you make some of this scripture a reality in your life. For example, we talk about a scripture. I switched up my notes, and that's why I'm wondering where I'm at. Did I have the one on fear? The, no fear. I got it. Yeah, go to there. Yeah. I thought I was switching up my message before I started. That would have been really good, but I'm like, that was a stupid move. All right, is this the one we have? Do we have? Did I mess it up? All right. So I messed it up. All right. All right, so first. I might have taken another mulligan. <laughs> Two in one month. That's really strategic that I kind of change this around. All right, what? Here it is. It's on Becky's. See, I think for a lot of people, we deal with fear and we deal in anxiety and we live in doubt and disbelief. And sometimes with all of our good intentions, we might want to look at a person and say, you shouldn't fear. The Bible says 366 times, don't fear. And a lot of times I think when stuff like that, we read stuff like that or hear stuff like that, we can almost feel a little bit more guilty. You know, there's a powerful verse in 1 John 4, verse 18, that now I finally found it. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love him because he first loved us. That's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible about fear and about the love that God has for us. See, this is another one of those verses that sometimes is hard to understand, and I probably could sit here and maybe give you some people that are way smarter than I am and try to explain that a little bit to you and give you a little bit more understanding. But sometimes understanding isn't just the ticket to be able to respond. Or sometimes a, word, a scripture like that, you actually need to sit with the Lord and have him apply it to your life and have him make that verse real for you. Because it's easy to get to the place where you have doubt or confusion, and sometimes the only way to silence that is to actually get out your Bible, hold it in your hands, 
and saying, God, would you make this a reality in my life? Because as many times as I read it, many times as I look at it, it doesn't seem real to me. And that's why there's so much attention in the Bible. God tells us to meditate. He even told Joshua to meditate before he went into the promised land because he said to Joshua, I'm telling you to fear not. I'm telling you don't be discouraged or dismayed, but fear not. And how, what's his antidote for Joshua? You need to meditate on the word of God. So in the Bible, when it talks about meditation, one of the definitions means to just slow down to allow transformation. Part of the word meditate means to reflect, to contemplate, and to speak the word of God out loud. That's actually a tool that would be used in meditation, is that you might even read the Bible verse out loud. So I want to close today about talking about seven or six different tools on how to meditate. But I think one of the things about meditation, it's not so much following a list of rules or kind of how a book might say to do it or how I might say to do it, but I think the important part of meditation is you're coming before God and saying, I'm going to trust you to lead me into all truths. That you're coming to God with a scripture in the hand, with a Bible in your hand, and you're saying, God, I want you to make this a reality in my life. Or God, I have a question about the scripture, and I'm going to ask you to explain it to me. Sometimes we just need to slow down with our scripture and read it and reflect a little bit. Sometimes it's helpful to actually write the verse down word for word and on a piece of paper. Sometimes when you do that discipline, you might see something that you haven't seen by just reading it. Sometimes it's good to read it again. Sometimes it's helpful to read the surrounding verses. Maybe the surrounding verses would speak to you. But I think oftentimes we have to ask God in situations to help us believe maybe parts of Scripture that we are having a disconnect with us responding to them. Sometimes we have to ask God to help us to be able to see that verse as a reality in our own life. If you deal with a lot of fear, it might be hard for you to absorb John's chapter about perfect love, cast out fear. And ask God for the faith to believe in that. But I think what times I find most effective in meditation is just the time you sit with the scripture and you begin to dialogue with God. And just pour out to him your honesty of why maybe you don't understand a scripture. Or maybe pour out to him why you have a hard time believing a scripture. And seeing how he will lead you in all truths. I think one of the handiest parts, if you are going to meditate on the word of God, is sometimes to have a good study Bible. Often when I'm meditating on the words, I don't like to read all the notes in the bottom because I find I can actually get off. I can get down a little sidetrack and I'm not allowing the Lord to speak to me. What I like to do is find the verse, the, the scripture might have cross-referencing verses. So you might be reading a, book, a, a, a verse in Psalms and it will reference, look at uh, 1 John and to see another way that this is written out in the Bible. And you look at another verse in the Bible that's as similar to this one and it might start bringing meaning to it. I think when I meditate on the Word of God, I like to just get into the Word of God and just read it and read more of it. I have such a tendency to want to get out my phone and look at a commentary or say, okay, somebody else explain this to me. And there's time for that. There's other time for that. But sometimes I think my favorite time of Bible study with the Lord is just sitting with my Bible alone and just saying, God, would you lead me into all truths? that the scripture I'm reading here, that you bring it to life for me. Because I'm sick of having disconnections between reading and responding. And the whole time I'm doing that, 
it creates in me more of this worship of God. Because I think so often we want God to speak to us, and I do, like big decisions, and we want him to speak. And so often I find how I can hear the voice of God easily when I just have a Bible in hand and just saying, God, would you help me understand this verse because it doesn't seem very real in my life. And it's a powerful way to hear God. I know sometimes we get frustrated and say, hey, I feel like I'm praying and asking God for guidance and direction, and I don't feel like he's responding to me. That does happen. I know what that's like, but there's times when I just get out my Bible and I just open it up and I'm reading something and say, God, that doesn't make any sense to me. And just sitting there and waiting for him to respond to me because I know he is because he's faithful. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about meditation and how to do it. But the point of this message is just to encourage you to do it if you haven't done it before. Because that might be six things that I do every morning. It might be totally different from what you're going to do in the morning or in the evening whenever you find time. But I just want to encourage you as we are moving forward into God's covenant plans for our life, as we're moving for- through wilderness seasons in our life and we want to get into that promised land that God has for us, Sometimes it's going to take us to slow down and to absorb a little bit of what God has saying to us in his word. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and to lead us in our final song. And as we lead in that final song, I encourage you to use this time to worship the Lord, but also to connect with the Lord about this topic of meditating on his word and hearing what he has to say to each of us. Father, I do thank you that the word of God is living and active, and that is a sharp sword that is able to divide truth from lies and deception. Father, I thank you when we read your word, it will lead us into all truths, and we will experience all truths. But God, sometimes it takes time, and sometimes it's hard to budget our time-wise God, I pray that you would help us to be good students of your word. To be obedient, to listen to you, but also to respond to you. God, I pray that if anyone here today has a hard time understanding your love, understanding what it means to be a child of God, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you draw them to you and convince them of your great love that you have for them. Lord, I thank you that you are the faithful shepherd that does lead us. And Father, we just worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.